Are you here? Yes, hello from the Paul Leslie Hour. Welcome to episode number 992. We're honored to present an in-person interview with performance and confidence coach Adam Cole. The musical Atlanta-based Adam Cole is a pianist, composer, conductor, and he interviews people on his show, Truer MU. Keep in mind, the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people like you. Please be a supporter of independent media. Simply visit www.thepaulleslie.com support, and we thank you. Now, with that, I think it's about that time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here at the Willow School. I'm with Adam Cole. He is a singer, a pianist, a songwriter, uh, a performance and confidence coach, the host of a podcast, Truer MU, The Truth About Music. And I was a guest on Adam's show, so it's a great pleasure to welcome in person, Adam Cole. Great, great to have you in my studio. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me uh, here and coming on the show. Thank you. So tell me, what are you the most happy doing? Oh, you know, I gotta say I'm, I think it's usually, I I don't wanna just say teaching because teaching is a loaded word, but I'm most happy when I'm helping somebody figure out the thing they need the most to grow. That's not just teaching, that's like coaching, that's like being present to somebody. So like in my coaching, when I'm working with someone, if I'm working on something with them that's really central to them and you know, it's like, oh, this is something I've never been able to do before and we get through it, that's, that's when I'm just, yeah, that's when I'm the happiest. So you would say teaching is at the heart of everything you do. Again, I think teaching is a loaded word. Coaching is probably more. Coaching. Yeah, you know, because teaching implies I know something you don't know. Hmm. And coaching is more about, you know, we're going to do this together and I may be able to be steady for you when you have to take your feet off the ground. I think most stories are best from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Tell us uh, where you're from and and about your formative years. Sure. Um, Even though I wasn't born in Atlanta, and that was just by happenstance, um, I've been here almost my entire life, since I was three. And um, before before my family returned to Atlanta, we had been in Atlanta for four generations, fourth generation Atlantan. Wow. Um, My great-grandfather came from the Pale of the Settlement out in Ukraine, um, where a lot of Jewish people were. And uh, he settled in Grant Park, where I live. He he came to Atlanta, found a place, in a boarding house and then um, brought a woman over to marry him and uh, lived in Grant Park where I eventually brought my family four generations later. So, um, You don't meet many Atlantans that are fourth generation or even, you know, you go around and you meet people and usually they weren't even born here. That's right. Yeah, Atlanta's like that. Yeah. So you have a unique experience as a a, a native, but also multi-generational yeah. Atlantan. Right. What is your overall perspective of the Atlanta music scene? Well, which one? Because there's a classical scene, <laughs> right. jazz. I've been fortunate enough to be a part of a lot of different ones. Mm. Jazz scene, classical scene, um, vocal classical scene, uh, rock scene, you know, 
my son's part of the hip hop scene. I'm not. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've had a little peek at that through him. But so, which scene in particular, or all of them? Just all of them as a whole, because mm-hmm. you know, Atlanta has, as you said, all of these different things. Yeah. Right. Well, my neighborhood, Grant Park, we had just we're just littered with singer songwriters and you know wannabe rock stars, and that's been fun. Um, and of course, in the 25 years that I lived in Grant Park. Um, it's changed and it isn't so bohemian anymore. So there's there's a kind of a change where maybe, you know, as the city begins to condense and as rents get higher and as you have more people with means living in the city, some of the funkiness goes out of it. Hmm. Um, jazz scene has probably improved a lot. Um, I think when I came here, um, I, I spent five years up in Ohio, I went to Oberlin College, and uh, the Cleveland jazz scene is just wonderful. And I was really kind of, when I first got to Atlanta, a little disappointed with the Atlanta jazz scene. Not in terms of, you know, how good people were, but in terms of their attitude towards the music. Hmm. Um, I felt like when I was at Oberlin, where I went to college, and when I was in um, in Cleveland and checked the scene out a little bit, I really got this buzz when I listened to jazz. And when I came back to Atlanta, it just felt very clicky, and it felt very much, it was kind of empty. It was a, Hmm. a very empty feeling. Um, since, you know, in the last 25 years, I'd say that's, sorry, 35 years because I've only been married 25. So this is a 10 years before that. It's definitely improved. And I think, uh, there's a lot more heart and soul in the jazz community now, as there probably was in the sixties and seventies before I started doing music. <clears throat> probably it just went away a little bit as the city began to change and grow and age. Um, if that makes sense. Now, I don't know if the people can see this, but there's this, this, beautiful painting of a jazz type scene. Yeah. Would you say that jazz is where your musical soul most resides? Gosh, that's such a great question. Um, I think so. Um, look, I mean, I love classical music and I write, cla- I've written a symphony. I care very much about classical music and it's definitely part of what woke me up to, um, to music. It was a classical experience. It was all Saint, all state chorus that when I was 18 or 17 that made me think, oh God, this is it. Music is what you need to be doing. But uh, jazz has always been in my blood somehow, even though it's not part of my, my lineage, not part of my ancestry or my family or anything. When I first heard jazz, you know, I think Thelonious's Monk, Thelonious Monk's Monk's Dream was the album. And I heard this and it just went, <laughs> you know, mm. like a lightning bolt. Um, so, and, you know, and I had similar experiences, like I said, with classical and with singer-songwriter stuff after. That same lightning bolt, damn, you need to do this. But jazz hit me first, and I always felt like I needed to be a jazz musician. I needed to know what a jazz musician knew, and I think that has something to do with this combination of knowledge and freedom that you don't always find in classical music or even in singer-songwriter, and uh, something about how close the jazz musician gets to the beat, that swing. It's like they have to be, it's like skiing or skating or something where you have to balance right on the edge of the beat. You know, it gives you that impetus and it's just not, it's just nowhere else. It's in classical if you're lucky, you know. But uh, jazz, it has to be there. And if it's not, it's really just not the music. And so I, I think I just feel that. And I think there's something else too now that I talk about it with you. There's a sense of outsiderness to jazz, um, and I've always felt like an outsider in everything I've ever been in—an outsider in classical, outsider in jazz, you know, outsider in singer-songwriter, outsider as a writer. 
Um, and so, in a way, you know, I belong with outsiders. Hmm. And so jazz, being outsiders, even feeling like an outsider in jazz, at least I feel like I'm in the right place. What would you say is the source of that, feeling like an outsider in all these different areas of music and other or vocations? Two things, I think. One, I think when you're Jewish, you tend to feel like an outsider, although I feel like an outsider in my Jewish community as well. <laughs> I mean, I just can't. And I think, too, because I'm neuroatypical, and uh, I think I have a different brain, and I'm just, I don't think like other people. Um, and I've come to learn how to be more and more like other people, to, you know, to learn how to talk to people in a way that makes sense and to understand how people work. But I'm never really going to have the same brain as a lot of other people. So I've always felt there's something different about me and it's just going to be. And I've come to embrace that now. But for decades, it was just like, how can I be normal? How can I fit in? Uh, I don't want that anymore. It's not possible. So now I'm just trying to be comfortable in myself. So I think that outsider stuff comes more from that than the Jewish, but Jewish sets you up for that. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Yeah. But I guess if you think about it, couldn't uh, being an outsider really help you as a songwriter? Because just now as I think about, okay, who would be my all-time favorite songwriters? Bob Dylan comes to mind, yeah. Paul Simon, even Irving Berlin. Three Jewish people, by the way. Yeah, they are. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, so is, is there maybe something to being an outsider that could help a writer? Sure. Um, sure, I think it, anything can help a writer, whatever their experience is. If you are an outsider, um, you have a lot to write about, mm -hmm. right? There's an energy to being an outsider, either the energy of I want to get in or the energy of I'm not going to be pulled in uh, that you can use. And it gives you material for your songs. Of course, if you, you know, have personality problems that make you an outsider where you can't stay married. There's lots of songs in that, you know. Um, so, you know, I don't know. How, Irving Berlin is an interesting choice. How do you see him as an outsider? Um, well, j just in that, I don't know if he's really an outsider, but I guess I'm thinking about here's a guy who was so, so good at writing about these different things that, you know, I believe he was born in Russia, wasn't he? I think so, yeah. Yeah. He's a Russian guy. Clearly really brilliant, but he writes God Bless America. Right. You know? Uh, which, that that's just, that's fascinating. But yeah, I don't know if I would call him an outsider. He's maybe an outsider in that there's only one of him that is that brilliant. <laughs> sure, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I don't think... Everybody that's that brilliant, well, I don't know, does everybody that's that brilliant put themselves in the outside category? I mean, I think Prince was an outsider for that, for, in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nobody's going to be like him, nobody's going to touch him. But if you're an outsider, you still got to, people still have to identify with you. Right. You know, you can't just be like, um, uh, who's that guy that came on Letterman all the time? He was like a, a writer, a cartoonist, and he used to like have temper, temper tantrums on David Letterman. Do you know what I'm talking about? Harvey Picard? Harvey Picard, right. Yeah. Now, I mean, he managed to get himself a cult following, but I mean, he was just so outsider that it was hard to even sympathize with him. Right. You know, and that's not necessarily good. You have to have, people need to be able to say, yeah, I'm an outsider too. I'm just like you. Right. You know, and your songs, they have to have, you can't just write a song like, you know, dogs. Right. Because, you know, nobody wants to listen to that, mm. even though that's really outsider, right? Um, right? You have to find some way to bring people out with you so that you're not outside anymore. It's a bit of a paradox. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, th- you're a unique person to ask this question. It's one of my all-time favorite questions. I do ask, as you know, a lot of questions over and over again. Yeah. In music, is it more important to be confident or is it more important to have a bit of humility? Why does it have to be one or the other? It doesn't. Right. That's my answer. <laughs> um, it sets up a false dichotomy that one is one pushes the other out. Just because you're confident, you can't be humble. Just because you're humble, you're not being confident. No, no. Um, humility is no is 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 I don't know everything. I'm not in 100% control. Um, confidence is what I've got, what I can do. I'm confident about. You know, if you're skateboarding, um, you're humble because you don't want to crash and bash your skull in. But you're also confident that you're not going to fall because if you're not confident, you are. Hmm. So both have to be present. Uh, you know, you can't say one is more important than the other unless you're out of balance with one of them. If you're lacking in humility and you have lots of confidence, then probably humility is more important for you. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Good answer. Where does confidence come from? I think confidence comes from knowing your stuff. Um, confidence comes from knowing you've been in a in situations that are scary or dangerous, and you can handle them, you can survive them no matter what. You may not master them, you may not get through them unscathed, but you're gonna recover at least. You know, I mean, any of the people, hundreds or thousands of people you've interviewed, the famous ones, they've all had really terrible nights, yeah. right? And they kept doing it, none of them gave up, because, you know, they knew that was part of the deal, and, uh, you know, nobody remembers their, you know, terrible nights, at least, most of them, because back in those days, everybody didn't have their phone, you know, recording their worst moment and putting it on Facebook. Right. Um, they recovered from it, so they had confidence, you know. And confidence can also come from having people in your corner that you can rely on, you know, resources. Um, I think about somebody like Barbara Streisand, who I wonder what her confidence level is. You know, maybe she has to be 50 times better than everybody else because she has no confidence. I don't know whether she trusts people. Uh, whether she can trust people. I don't want to read into her. I know very little about Barbara Streisand, but I do know she struggles with stage fright, um, you know, um, that kind of thing. So I don't know, you know, I think what would she need to feel confident in a way that she wouldn't have to be afraid all the time? I don't know. Hmm. It is interesting how many people, you know, being very, very successful or being very, very famous for what you do may not actually correlate to a boost in confidence. Oh, good point. I know that Greg Allman of the Allman Brothers Band, he said that always, always, before he would take the stage, he had this feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm going to pass out. And then he'd start, he'd sit down at the organ and start playing, and it was like, oh, everything's fine. Right. So for anybody who's out there, no matter what they do, and they're, they're starting to feel their confidence and it's starting to falter a bit. Whether it's because they're about to go out on stage and pick up their guitar, they're maybe going to go out and tell jokes, or maybe they have a big meeting at the office. What should you start doing when you start feeling like that? Like, I don't feel so confident right now. Well, it, first of all, it's completely normal and helpful. Um, if it doesn't happen to you, it probably means something's wrong. If you're not feeling something before you go on, either you're so, you've done this so long that it just doesn't scare you anymore, or you're really not present. 
and you're setting yourself up for something. So first of all, you know, accept it and enjoy it if you can. Um, or don't be afraid of the fear. Um, it's there. It comes. It'll give you energy. It'll keep you present and focused. Um, you know, other than that, you can prepare for it. You can actually practice being scared before you, you know, you can actually be, you're at home. One of the things I tell some of my students, mm -hmm. like when I teach piano lessons, for instance, is I say, you know, they come in the, the lesson with me and then they play and it doesn't go well and they say, well, you know, it's better at home. And I say, yeah, of course, because there's nobody watching you. I'm watching you. So at home, when you're at home, this is what I want you to do. You've got a piece you want to play in front of me, I want you to play it three times. And it has to be correct three times. And if you really want to make it smoke, three times in a row. Because that third time you're doing it, you're bored, you're ready, you're daydreaming, and things are going to start to go wrong. So you can mimic that distracted mindset with your third time performing. So in this way, you can prepare yourself for that feeling that's not going to be the same when you're sitting by yourself. Hmm. Interesting stuff. So tell us about where you got the idea that you were going to start this podcast of yours. What was it that inspired it? Oh, that's easy. It was the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a music school, which I still have, and um, I got this idea, hey, wouldn't it be great if I interviewed some of my teachers, you know, just in a 10, 15-minute interview, who are you? And then we'll put it up on the website. So I just started using Zoom, and I was like, look at this, Zoom, it changes camera depending on who's talking. You know, it does everything for me. This is great. I wonder who else I could interview. And then I started just, you know, putting my name out and saying, hey, you know, I'd like to interview you, and it just took off. And I've had a, a great run. I've, I'm coming up on, um, on my 100th guest pretty soon. So oh, that's, wow. you know, small potatoes compared to you, but I'm still excited about it. 100 is, is congratulations, yeah. Thank you, pretty soon, yeah. yeah. And so tell us about some of the guests. Was there anybody who really floored you? Oh, yeah, lots of people. Um, the, one of the most recent interviews I've done, and at, at the time of this interview, it hasn't come up yet, but I interviewed Bruce Thomas of Elvis Costello and the Attractions. And it floored me because he did it, because he wanted to. Um, you know, some of these people, I've, I've reached out to celebrities in the past, and some of them are, their management says, yeah, I think Bruce Springsteen's management said, it's just not possible. And I was hmm. like, oh, come on, Bruce. You know, and I, if I could talk to him, he'd probably say, sure, but you've right. got to get through the gatekeepers. Bruce Thomas, um, you know, one of the greatest bass players in the world, but very understated. He broke with the band early, so he's just kind of floating around out there. Also an author. He was on Facebook. I friended him. He let me. You know, I, I let it sit for a while, and then I said, hey, could I talk to you? And he'd be, he's like, sure. And then I, I found out he'd done lots of interviews. He's, he's very publicity conscious. He cares about his books and his legacy, and he's happy to interview with people. And uh, he let me do a great interview with him. And uh, it was great, and I learned more about Elvis Costello from him than I think I would have learned from Elvis, you know, who I also couldn't get to, at least not yet. And, um, you know, and I had a chance to just revisit the music and talk to him about some of my favorite tracks, and he was able to tell me exactly what they were doing when they were recording these tracks and the album Trust. I was like, Trust is amazing. What were you doing? You know, and he told me, and that was just great. Hmm. Um, so I think that's my most recent favorite just because it's so new. I talked to Jen Stevens of uh, Intermittent Fasting. She's an intermittent fasting guru, and I was on her show, and I got her to come on my show to talk about her son, and that was cool. Uh, Tom Wehrman, 
who uh, produced all these amazing acts from the 70s and 80s, including Cheap Trick and uh, Motley Crue. He's come on my show three times. Wow. He's, he's, he's been great, and he's always just entertaining and fun. And again, another guy who's just happy that he cares about his legacy, and he doesn't mind talking to, to me. Hmm. You know, and he wants to, if the interview's good, he's going to do it. So, I mean, those are some people I've really enjoyed. I talked to Sean Mullins, uh, Rick Beato, um, the um, Mother's Finest, just a number of people. And then ordinary people who aren't celebrities, too. You know, they're just... And then people in the middle. Mm-hmm. Adam Cohen is this film composer. You wouldn't know him by name, but you've probably seen his work. You know, he's composed for Disney, and he's, you know, worked on TV shows and stuff. And we went on a show. We did this crazy thing where he sent me a 10-minute film that had no music on it that he had composed music to. And we watched the film with no music together. And then I told him how I would score it. And then we listened to the version with the film that he scored on it mm. to compare notes, kind of like a how to f- how to film score thing, you know. And we did it took us four. We we did it scene by scene for a ten minute film, and it took us about two two hours, four episodes. So you've had all these interesting folks, and as we were discussing before, a lot of times the guy behind the guy uh-huh. is more interesting than yeah. the guy. Right. But you've had. Liberty DeVito. That's right. And Reese Clark, too, the other Billy Joel drummer. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So who, if you could just get anybody, maybe name a few people. Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen. Please, please, please. <laughs> and I don't want to talk to him about the usual stuff. Right. I want to talk to him about songwriting. You yeah. know, I really, really want to talk to him. Um, it'd be fun to talk to Billy Joel, because uh, I've been a fan for so long. Uh, Nick Lowe. Elvis Costello, wouldn't mind talking to them. Um, gosh, who else? Of course there are other people. Um, there's actors I'd like to talk to. You know, If I can't remember his name now, he's never going to come on my show. But he, he's like a great character actor. He does different... Like He was Commissioner Gordon in the Batman movies. Um, what's his name? You know, he's just complete a chameleon. Complete chameleon. He changes... His person personality for every film. Oh, wish I could remember. Uh, it's coming to me too. You're not referring to Gary Oldman. Yes, Gary yeah. Oldman. He would be a great interview. I'd love to talk to him. Yeah, um, he would. You know, Peter Gabriel. Oh, wouldn't I kill to talk to Peter Gabriel? People that I think are like Robert De Niro. People that are more than just good at what they do, you know, people that are serious about themselves, you know, people that take themselves seriously but not too seriously, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there are people I wouldn't necessarily want to interview because I think they'd protect themselves too much, right. you know. Um, and I don't want to say any names like that because that would insult them. But there are people, I think, who would pretty much just, based on interviews I've seen with them or, you know, they keep their persona up, you know, and... Uh, I want to talk to people who really want to talk, mm. you know. Where do you get the inspiration for your songs? Um, just from several places. I get, Some of them I dream. Um, I, I'll, 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 usually the, it'll come right before I'm waking up, some little snippet of a song, uh, and then I'll write it down before I forget it, because if I don't write it down, it's gone forever. And then I'll have to, I'll, I'll tell myself, okay, you've got five seconds of a song. Now you have to write a whole song around it. And I've done that probably a dozen times or more. It's been fun, and the songs that come out are great. 
Sometimes it comes out of a real situation, uh, you know, a, a situation I've actually been in where I, I feel like I've got to write about this. Sometimes it comes out of a situation that isn't real, but uh, like, you know, maybe I'll get in a fight with someone and it won't be a serious fight, but I'll turn it into a serious fight for the song. <laughs> you know, I've done that before. Um, sometimes I'll tell someone else's story. I had a friend, she had this experience once where she was a kid in the, and she used to love to walk in the woods. And she said, one day I went walking in the woods and I saw this truck out there. And there was a guy lying in the truck and his feet were lying out you know, at the door. He was just sitting there. And I got really scared and I ran. And she said, and the, the woods were never the same after that. And I thought, God, what a freaking great story that is. Yeah. So I wrote a song. I wrote that song. And I played it for her. I sat her in the car and I played it for her. And she burst into tears and she cried. And uh, I don't think anybody except her has ever heard that song. Um, because it's not on an album I've released yet. But I just love that. Um, that, you know, that experience. That was great. Huh got my curiosity up about this song uh-huh but songs can uh, inspiration can just come from the strangest of places sure sure mm. you know and if you're open and paying attention and you're not afraid to dive in and try to write it you know i think probably that's the thing that stops people it's not the inspiration i think they have the inspiration i think it's you know what's the machine that gets the inspiration going i got a good machine you know it's just okay it's time to write I'm going to listen and see what happens, and then I'm going to write something, and maybe it's a mess, or maybe it's okay. I'll vet it to people, or I'll listen to it myself, I'll play it in my car, and then I'll fix it. And so I have a whole system, you know, a whole process that I use to write a song. That process is missing for most people. Hmm. I think a lot of people could write songs if they wanted, but they don't know that process is missing, and they think it's supposed to be magical and, you know, just come out right, or they're, they're too quick to beat themselves up. I got a lot of friends, you know, who who come up with all kinds of crazy ideas and then they never do anything with them. Like, they'll only write 17 songs, but they've come up with hundreds of ideas. Mm. Like, well, you could probably write hundreds of songs. Just go in there and let those songs be bad. Sometimes bad songs are actually not bad songs. You know, I played a song for you earlier and I thought that song was terrible. You know, but then I played it for other people and they were like, no, I like this. So it surprised me. And if I hadn't written, the song was, uh, They Call Me Crazy. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's, and so that part of the song was the part that came out in a dream. They call me crazy. They tell me, when do you come back? They call me crazy. That was all I got from the dream. That little bit. And I wrote it down. I said, what can I do with that? You know, and I wrote a song around that. And I was like, is this any good? This is weird. This song is weird. It turned out to be a great song, you know, and I'm yeah. using it for the Tiny Desk concert. I'm going to go ahead and put it out in the world. I never expected that. I was scared of that song. Hmm. I thought it sucked. You know, I thought it was too strange, too odd. I'm sure lots of people feel that way. You know, oh, my song, it's no good. People will think it's funny. They'll laugh at me. They'll tell me to stop, to go home. Maybe not. Yeah. So what do you think somebody does when they're, when they're writing a song, for example, and they're starting to hear that kind of voice that says, Oh, this is stepping outside the lines. This is weird, whatever. Yeah. What do you do? Well, it's helpful, first of all, to recognize that it's there. Some people, I think, don't know that, that's, that that voice is even there. They just stop writing. So the first thing is you've got to say, there's a voice in my head. It's telling me I'm no good. It's telling me to stop. The second thing is, where did that voice come from? Is that my dad's voice? My mom's voice? My, you know, is there somebody in my life that used to say that to me? Does that voice belong to me or does it belong to them? You know, then you can maybe distance yourself from that voice. If it does belong to you, 
do you have to listen to it? You know, sometimes you can say, okay, voice, I can tell you're trying to protect me with that. You're trying to tell me, be careful, you could get hurt. I'm just here to protect you. That song's no good. Thank you for telling me. I'm going to continue on and write this song, and maybe some other people will have a different opinion. You know, there's ways you can work with that voice. You know, I still have that voice, obviously, when I perform, you know, but, um, you know, I, I, it's just, it's, it feels very real, but it isn't. It's just a thing in your head. You can decide how real it is or how right it is. And maybe the song is stupid. I've written stupid songs. I still put them out there. <laughs> but I mean, I'll say, yeah, that was a stupid song. I put it on that album, you know, because it's fun. I enjoy it. I enjoy how stupid that song is, you know. So you have taught music, uh, worked with a lot of children. Yeah. Have you had any revelation as a result of doing that? Working with children? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell us about it. Um, well, probably the biggest revelation I had working with children was when I taught uh, elementary and middle school music. Because I went through a period of 11 years where I was a public school music teacher. That was uh, yeah, before what I do now. And, uh, you know, I mean, I had an amazing, amazing test, uh, teacher preparation program. I went to Georgia State University, and man, they were great. They really taught me how to be a teacher. You know, in about three years, I really felt very strong. And I was ready for my first day. And I sure did fall flat on my face on my first day. I mean, it was terrifying going into the school system and teaching kids. And I didn't get my feet under me for years. This is after being really, really well taught. And one of the problems I had in the school system was that I liked to hear myself talk, as you probably have guessed from this interview. <laughs> um, and kids don't, they don't do that. As soon as they feel like you're talking to yourself, they... They shut down. Kids don't have this thing that, you know, you have where you're polite and you're going to listen and see if there's anything in it before you walk away. Kids are just like, oh, no, your, your 10 seconds are up, man. I'm going to throw a paper airplane across the room or I'm going to act out or I'm going to ask you a question. And, you know, there's several ways you can deal with that as a teacher. And the first way is you just stay busy and you, you work twice as hard and you keep the class moving and you keep the class moving. And that's what I did for a long time until I finally... You know, I went to middle school and that wasn't working anymore because they were older and they, they didn't have to do what I told them. So I started just, you know, relaxing and not, you know, focusing really on what I needed to say and less about how I wanted to come across, you know. Um, so they taught me that. Uh, and they taught me that again and again. And if I went back to middle school now, they would still be teaching me that because that's the lesson I always have to learn. You know, stop paying attention to yourself. Just do it. Stop paying attention to yourself. Stop watching yourself. Just do. We're here. We're listening. You don't have to show off. You don't have anything to prove. You're not God. Just teach us something. You know, piano lessons are much easier because they're one-on-one. -on -one. Coaching is much easier because it's one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and in that situation, if I start to, you know, people are more apt to listen to you and let you talk forever, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one situation. Um, so I... You know, I try to stop myself in that situation. But in lessons in coaching, I'll often give advice to someone that I think is actually something I need to do. Hmm. And so a lot of the children I've taught, you know, they'll have troubles with their, their nerves or they'll have troubles with practicing or they won't want to practice. And I'll give them some advice and I'll say, listen, you need to try this, do this. And over the years, I've been like, well, what if I did that? Oh, this works. You know, hey, it, you know, I followed my own advice and I got better. So I have kids to thank for that. 
Do you think there are any misconceptions about how children relate to music? Hmm. I was told there's this music methodology that really tries hard to figure out what kids' aptitude in music is. Tries to figure out early who are the best musicians based on their aptitude, right? You can take these tests and find out that some kids can hear, you know, if I play, they can tell you what notes those are. And other kids, you know, you could spend five years going and say, is that a major chord or a minor chord? And they don't know. So they want to weed people out with aptitude. Um, I think that's a mistake because who knows what's causing that. You know, um, if somebody has, you know, a hearing loss, you know, that would give their aptitude zero for music. You know, well, up to a point. Someone like Evelyn Glennie, of course, has overcome her hearing loss. But generally, you can't hear, you're not going to gravitate towards music. But you give them their hearing back and that all might be there. That mechanism might all be there. So that aptitude was lying to you. So you have to be careful when you try to guess what somebody's music ability is because you could be way off. It's much better to work with what you've got, you know. Um, I wouldn't say that in many ways my musical aptitude was all that high. I had a couple things going for me. I had a great ear and I could improvise. But everything else, my ability to sight read, my ability to play piano in front of people and not collapse, um, my finger dexterity was all terrible. Based on my aptitude, I think I got shut out of a lot of music opportunities in high school and in college. Um, professors heard me in college. They, they heard me sing, and they passed on me to be any kind of a singer at all. Uh, a composition department at Oberlin heard my compositions and were not interested. Uh, based on my aptitude, I guess, they tried to judge me. And um, I've since proved them wrong. I'm a good singer and a good composer. And so I'm very careful you know, with my students especially if I'm apt to judge them. If I'm like, oh God, this kid's gonna be really hard or this person I'm talking to, you know, they're just gonna be a lot of work. Well, then I need to stop and think, you know, maybe the problem's coming from me, not them. Hmm. What do you hope people say about Adam Cole when you're not in the room? Nice guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's really all I can hope for. Um, my dreams, of course, are, oh, Adam Cole, he's so brilliant. Oh, he's done so many things. Look at all the things he's done. But that's just a joke, right? Because when people actually say that to me, I get very uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so I really realize that's not what I want other people to be saying. That's what I wish I felt like inside, you know, comfortable in my skin, not always having to prove myself. Hmm. The reality is I just want people to feel like I loved them and, the, you know, and that I love them. Has there been a favorite compliment that you've received? Mm, wow. Nobody's ever asked me that question. <sighs> I'm sure there has. Um, you know, my favorite compliment is when I'm doing interviews with people and they say, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. Because I get that. I've, I've been fortunate to get that on almost every interview. Like I managed to figure out the question that really goes, whoa. You know, just like yeah. you just did with that compliment question. It's an interesting question. I like that because it means I've done my job. I've really paid attention to the person and I've asked them something that they care about that means something to them. They're engaged in the interview now. It's not just ping pong. Right. Now we're together going somewhere. Hmm. What's on the horizon? What do you 
have coming up in the world of Adam Cole? I'm gearing up my coaching. I want to do lots more coaching. Yeah. I want to work with lots more people, uh, especially adults who have what they consider to be anxiety, crippling anxiety, and they don't want to use medication to get over it. They just want to feel better about what they're doing. So I'm going to do, do, do a big push on that. And is that just limited to music? Oh, no. Beyond. Writers, too. I would love to work with writers who want to present themselves in front of people, you know, want to read their books without the book shaking, uh, want to be able to market themselves confidently, um, you know. Excellent. Yeah. So they could go to acole.net, right? Absolutely. acole.net, adamcole.net will also work. Okay. Yeah. What is the best thing about being Adam Cole? <laughs> Gosh. I thought you were going to ask, who is Adam Cole? Instead, you've asked me that. <laughs> the best thing about being me? You know, I. the real best thing about being me is that I have a beautiful wife and a great family. That's honestly the truth. Um, if somebody were to be me, you know, I've been very lucky in my life. And I've, I've had lots of love and lots of support all up and down. I have great friends. And I'm very lucky in that. But I think your question is also kind of like live in the world of Adam Cole, what's fun about being me? And yeah. What's fun about being me is the same thing that's not so much fun about being me is the scattered creativity that just, you know, I go every direction, you know, and I, I got to master everything I set my mind to, even if it takes me 30 years, and I just can't quit no matter what I do. And the result is I come up with some really neat stuff, you know, neat pieces of music, neat writing, you know, and that's fun. I look look back at that and I say, wow, that was a great experience, you know. I'm about to do a performance of Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run album with a full band in, in April. Oh, you wow. Know? I know, right? Um, <laughs> it's, we're going to do it. And uh, it's going to be a sing-along and people are going to come and they're going to sing. We did that with Elton John music last year. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's just, you're going to add that to everything you're doing, Adam? Yeah. We're going to do it. We're going to do a Bruce Springsteen concert, you know, for the benefit of my fans and for the benefit of my music school. They're going to come and they're going to sing and we're going to have a great time. Well, don't you think that's too much? Yeah, it's too much. <laughs> that's the best thing about being me is I just, it's fun for me to do too much. Well, you know, I always like to end the interview with that open-ended question. Now another show, Evening Magic, has started ending their show with this question oh, too okay. so that's nice oh good actually so adam cole if knowing that this has the potential to be heard by people in all different countries who knows when it could be you know in february it could be in 2025 what would you say to that person who's tuned in i would say uh, if i can help you come find me excellent and again, it's acole.net. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I, I will ask that question that you referenced. Who is Adam Cole? Yeah, I think I'm trying to figure out the answer to that question. Uh, I am an anxiety coach. I am a performance and confidence coach. I'm a songwriter at my core. And I'm a jazz musician at my core. I've got too many cores. So, I mean, but I am, I'm just me. I'm who I am. You know, um, I did an interview with a man named Sam Farmer not so long ago. Um, and when I did my interview with him, I realized that all my interviews 
Whereas I thought I was trying to be famous in my interviews. I thought I was going to interview people and I was going to be known as the guy that interviewed people, the next Terry Gross. This could be my thing. <laughs> and all the while, the interviews kept teaching me something. Mm -hmm. And after a while, I was like, oh. And then I interviewed Sam Farmer, who didn't discover he was on the autism spectrum until he was 40 years old. And I'm like, wow, you know, what an amazing self-acceptance he found, you know, by discovering that about himself. And then I said, oh my gosh, I'm neuroatypical. I'm sort of like that. I could come to accept myself for being the crazy, wild person that I am and stop trying to fix it, you know? Um, I realized that I was on a journey with those interviews and that was an important part of the journey. So I'm, I'm a guy on a journey and I'm learning to not have a destination anymore. That's wonderful. Well, Adam Cole, this is so much better than Zoom. Yeah, I'm pleased likewise. to meet you. I'm pleased to meet you too. And look eye to eye with you. Yeah, right on. All thank right. You. My pleasure. We thank you and appreciate you dropping in for the Paul Leslie Hour today. You know, you can help the Paul Leslie Hour in our mission to provide independent media content like this by visiting www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. We truly thank you. This is your announcer speaking. Performance of the Entertainer intro song and Corina Corina outro song courtesy of John Tremorano. Well, that's it for today. So until next time, be safe and be good.